Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape during week 73 of quarantine. From poolside at an Airbnb in sun-drenched Palm Springs adjacent California, boasting a generous spread of complimentary Keurig pods. This is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, once again, the lead singer of Sugar Ray and the host of Mark McGrath's 120 Weekends on the 90s on 9, right here on SiriusXM. Hello, and welcome back, our dear friend, Mark McGrath. Hey, Michael Tully, always a pleasure. And how you holding up, Matt? We're deep into this thing, you know. What, it, how you doing? You know, there's pluses and minuses. My kid's doing Zoom school next to a pool in Cathedral City, so... <laughs> So things could be worse, right? <laughs> things could be, could be, I can't, I don't think he can hear me. I can't believe he fell for it because we were like, so we're going to take a few days and we're going to, you know, kids deserve to be able to to swim and, you know, splash in pools, et cetera. And this summer, their time for that sort of thing has obviously been crazy deprived. So the whole point of this is we're going to get a house that has a pool. It's your pool. Go hog wild for a couple of days. And then we were like, you know, you could do school while we're out there technically. And he was like, okay. And we're like, oh my God. <laughs> Oh my God, he fell for it. I was I was totally prepared to let him flake for a few days, given the debatable value of Zoom school in the first place. But uh, he's out here and he's he just finished, he's doing his homework and then he's going to go down the, the water slide into the pool. Well, he's got that Tully uh, lineage of uh, learning. Learning is good. Learning is good. I'm trying to convince him that I paid attention in school because I was a horrible... Sn- I don't know, do you... How truthful are you with your kids? Obviously, you don't put all the warts on display, um, you know, without their even prompting you. But I find that I don't know how to juke and jive when I'm asked a direct question. And the fact of the matter is I was, I guess you could say technically kicked out of my high school for academic reasons after my my freshman year. And I kind of begged and clawed my way back in. It wasn't that I wasn't able to do the work. I just didn't. I was going to say, you're the smartest guy I know. And like, so obviously you just got you were bored with the, I guess, methodology of being a student. Mm, right? No, I think I was lazy. I would love to try to dress it up in something better than that. I was a really like next level procrastinator. I would just say, yeah. I, mean, I, w- I was Bart Simpson, you know, with I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Let me just do this one more hour. And then, and then, yeah. And, uh, and they asked me to leave and that's a whole other story but um i'm hoping that i can convince my child to have a work ethic that i myself really never possessed until i was like being a waiter is what actually made me a responsible human being i was pretty much a a pretty worthless loser until i had a real job yeah but you know these warrant riffs aren't going to learn themselves you know imagine how many hours you apply to the guitar you know so i think it's you know it's interesting and like you talk about well, what a waste of time playing to the Circus of Power records and Bang Tango records. But look how much it affected your life. Like, you know, you, you'd almost, you would encourage that with your own kids, but it's become not only part of your DNA, but what you do for a living, essentially, which is so ironic. So getting back to what you're saying about schools, like, I look at it as like it's their job right now. You know what I mean? And, and you, you do what you do. You meet people, and it's what you do. Yeah, I want them to do well, um, but I don't know if we're placing the same value on education we used to, at least the McGrath household, how much we actually care, how far they go, because like there's only so many county fairs I can play to get them 
Cal State Northridge. You know, it's, it's a with all due respect to the uh, to the Monarchs or Cal State Northridge. I forget. So when did how Matadors. how old, important to a small su- subsection of people? I'm sure that you that you nailed that. How far did you go in school? I actually graduated from uh, USC. Oh, dear Lord. Uh, yeah, I got a communications major, uh, a BA in communications, and two things. A, I would not be able to get into USC today with the grades I had, even you know, if you prorated them to today's you know uh, example. And the communications discipline now is one of the most difficult ones to get into at USC, when back then... I only got into it because I looked around, I saw the football players and cheerleaders. And I went, ah, this is where I need to be because I was very immature growing up. I was young looking. I was, my brain acted young. I was, all I cared about was Rip Magazine and Cream Magazine and New Metal Edge and all of that. So you're literally still wearing a junkyard t-shirt. And I, and it's probably the same one I wore back then, you know? So I, <laughs> I literally just used it to grow up. So it was it was good for me to get out of the house, and I lived in L.A. coming up from Newport Beach, which was uh, about an hour drive. Um, so it was good to mature as a human being. I wouldn't say I got this incredible education, but that was my fault, not the university's fault. It's beautiful. It's a great university, and I don't regret having a, a degree from there. I'm quite proud of it, actually, you know, because um, it's something people go, wow, you graduated? Because when I say I went there, people well, go, what, you graduated too? Yeah. I, I wouldn't. I'd be ashamed to say I went there and didn't graduate. At least I would be. Well, but if but if you told me that you went there and didn't graduate, I would assume it was because your music career stopped you from going all the way. And I have offended other celebrities by when they say that they have some sort of degree. And I say, oh, really? And they go, oh, you didn't think that I could finish college. That's not the reason why people are surprised. They're surprised because most of the time music or your career gets in the way of that. I read a really smart point one time about how the really great greats of music have to, and they use Bono as an example. Bono is, I don't know how you define a genius, but Bono could obviously run a company and be a CEO. And at a certain point, he had to not only quit school, he had to give up on leaving open any door to him having a legitimate career. He had to do the dumbest thing a smart person could do in order to become one of the biggest rock stars in the world. He had to go all in on being a rock star, which meant he'd probably end up as, as the world's smartest bartender if you right. two doesn't hit. Right. You know? That's that's truly insightful because that's the plan B is plan A philosophy. You know, it is, right. he did whatever he, can, he had to do. And, you know, Bono, since he was a CEO, he ran that red charity. I mean, it made billions and millions of dollars around the world. So he has proven himself as a that's CEO. Right. And when you think of the lead singer of a band, international billion dollar industry he's the ceo of you too so that's the irony once you start making money in the music business like you, we all kind of got in the music business to get away from the uh you know the tenants of business well if you don't have your hands on your business it will be taken away from you by managers the label others so you become a businessman very quickly once the dollars get involved but you're right because the music game and like sports and, and, and other occupations you it's a young man's game you know, you, you almost peak in your songwriting when you're definitely in your 20s. I love Paul McCartney. Yes. in the last great song he wrote. He's one of the world's greatest songwriters. You know, so yeah, you're right. There's, there's a time you got to take a flyer and go, I'm about to do the dumbest thing I've ever done. And think how many amazing people right now are, are like head waiters at Sizzler because they took a shot. You know? It's interesting, the, the thing about 
songwriting and how you say you're usually at your best in your 20s, it's a very rare, I, I can't think of another artistic pursuit where when you attain full mastery, you're basically done. M. Night Shyamalan actually put that really, really well. He said there's this inflection point, if I, I don't know if I'm using that phrase correctly, between where you have all of the energy and the ideas in the world and you have just enough chops to execute what you're trying to pull off. And at a certain point, your chops get so good that they kind of get in the way of you having the dumb luck to have the serendipity of painting out painting outside the lines because you don't even realize that you're painting outside the lines. And he talked about, I think most people would argue uh, uh, unsuccessfully, how he's tried to work with tons and tons of young up-and-comers to try to reinfect himself with that stuff because he knows that once you lose it personally, there's a beautiful gift that you have that you can never get back as a, as a creative person. Like I've heard Bono literally say, Scorsese didn't make his best films until he was in his 50s. Why shouldn't I make my best albums when I'm in my 50s? And that sounds perfectly sensible coming out of his mind. We all know it's insane. It's not how music of all art forms works. It is, Bono. I mean, look, they made great records late in their career. You know, Elevation yeah. it was a great record. And they're still putting out decent music. It's just... It, 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 they're 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 being hindered by the fact that the record industry kind of died, rock and roll kind of died. So it's hard to tell how creatively relevant YouTube would still be today, you know, under the old business yeah. model. Do I think K Rock, if it was still functioning as K Rock used to, would release the new YouTube single as a world premiere? I absolutely do. So I think Bono was in some rarefied air, being still and and the band too. Let's not discount the Edge and that whole band. There's something magical about the four of them. You know, I think they'd still be putting out credible, relevant music today. Um, and, and, and that'd be very rare because the Rolling Stones certainly haven't put out, as far as I'm concerned, anything decent since 88, you know, with Steel Wheels and uh, Mixed Emotions. I think it was the last... Mixed Emotions. Yeah, it was the last... That's right. Mixed Emotions yeah. is a decent Stones song. I was going to bring up the exact same one. That's yeah. like the Stones copying the Stones, you know what I mean, which I'm all for, you know. But Why not? There's some weird, but but in painting, people can still be creative as they get older, and sometimes people find their muse in painting as you get older. Very, very rare is the songwriter who gets better as they get older, or the director, because you're right, they start being naive. You know, the naive naivety is gone. Yes. You know, you, you, you the, the spirit of youth is gone. The, the can-do attitude is gone because now you're working and you've got this much money to make a movie. What it used to be like, I'm robbing Peter to pay Paul. I'm using this credit card. I don't care what they say. I'm not even getting insurance for that shot. You know, so that, that punk rock ethos that kind of drove your creativity has been absolutely handcuffed by now you're a business. And it has to do with bands. I see it all the time, you know, it happened in our band. We started just trying to write every mornings and some days, and that's all we try to do. And then the well kind of gets empty with that, you know? But that's what you do. That's yeah. what people want to hear from you. We started working with Pharrell and the Neptunes. No one wanted to hear that shit from us, so we had to go back to the well, but by that time it was completely dry, and the Strokes and Interpol were coming in, like, thanks for playing, Sugar Ray. Everclear's uh, right next door waiting for you, so, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Todd Rundgren, I think it was, just had the greatest line about that, that he became independently wealthy because for a, a series of convoluted reasons, he basically owned Meatloaf's Bad Out of Hell record. 
So he made all he made more money off that than Meatloaf and Jim Steinman put together. And he said what it earned him was the freedom that no other rock star that you really know about has, which is the freedom to not continue writing songs about his high school girlfriend. That's extremely, extremely well said. And I believe Tom Rudgren's yeah. had a career that's been a very, a very uh, full of integrity. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't think Todd Rundgren's ever done something he doesn't want to do. And not a lot of people can say that. I'm talking superstars right. can say that, you know? Because even if you're a superstar, if you're a superstar, you want to keep the superstar audience. So you might go like, oh my God, who's the latest uh, songwriter? Oh, Dr. Luke, let me get in with Dr. Luke. And even though I'm 60 and trying to dance like a Lady Gaga, you know, you know what I'm saying? It's like, yeah. it, we, everybody gets caught up in that the fountain of youth it's that Ponce de Leon thing everybody's just drawn to it because it's amazing being part of the entertainment world and getting that feedback and it is a drug but unfortunately you've got to learn if you're going to learn the, the, the ascension you've got to learn the coming back down the hill too it's, it's a really both are just as tricky to navigate yeah that's right but once you um to Rundgren's point once you get used to staying at the four seasons when you're on tour are you willing to take the risk that means the next time you're staying at the marriott that's right. really you become a prisoner of your own success really that's been very well said and then that breaks up the bands because they're fighting and then wives are involved and then like you know you're the star not this guy i mean just all the cliches i mean behind the music is one of the best insights into bands mm -hmm. ever because every band goes through, you know, sort of like, it's almost like a plot line. Everybody has it. Yep. We were young. We had nothing to lose. We came out of nowhere. We, we banded together. We went platinum. Everything was great. We bought cars. We bought a house in the hills. We lucked out again. And then Jim left because he wasn't going to have credit and sued the band. And this broke. And then they come down. And then the drugs and the booze. And then the re and then we're coming back and the reinvention. And then the song. I mean, it's just, it's, it's so, it's pathetic. It's sad, and everybody goes through it. It's, I it's remember somebody who worked on that show, I think, saying that they literally had the names for the different segments because, as you say, every single band fit into the same pigeonhole. So the one, and you know when the music starts, it's The Price of Fame. There's the segment, yeah. The Price of Fame. And they said, everyone except Weird Al. They didn't do The Price of Fame with Weird Al. He's the only one who he's like, yeah, I made a bunch of records, and it got really big, and uh, yeah, kind of. then I made another one, and... Yeah, that's pretty much it. The worst I mean, thing that ever happened to Weird Al was UHF. Or yeah, that or Coolio got pissed off at him and threatened to beat them up, beat him up when he did uh, Amish Paradise. Or right. something. I mean, he was very scared about that. I remember that was very important to him to like rectify that. And the greatest thing about Weird Al, he made a record like what five, six, seven, maybe eight years ago. What's the number one? It was his first number one record. So yeah. that's the weird, like the the uh, the anomaly of having massive success way late into your career way yeah. late you know who, who, who could have possibly predicted and i mean this seriously i mean yeah it's it's a joke and he's obviously dependent on other people's music and stuff like that but you look at the great big music superstars from the 1980s who could have possibly predicted that the only one that would have a hit 40 years later was weird al madonna can't do it michael jackson's not around to do it prince couldn't do it and is no longer around to do it weird al was the last man standing from 80s pop that's an insane yet true statement it's 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 so it's so impossible and mind-blowing that it's obvious almost you know what i mean of course it was weird al yeah you know um but but he does have that shtick where he can parody songs. And, and, and to his credit, he still looks good. He never yeah. drank and did boo. You know, he always, I heard, he's an extremely nice guy. 
Yep. I, I, this legendary nice guy to his band, to his audience. So he's had this slow burn, slow build into this thing where now he's playing like, in some cases, arenas, definitely theaters. And, 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 and now, you know, the, the industry, which is completely gone, has completely embraced him. It's That's just right. been, what an amazing career. Now we're at Al Stain at the Four Seasons, finally. Yeah, with Todd Rundgren. <laughs> Al's playing the Forum and Todd Rundgren's playing the Roxy, which is still great. Uh, we would be remiss to have a music-themed show and not uh, acknowledge the recent passing of Eddie Van Halen. Man. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about this today, and being witness to greatness is such a great thing. Like, whether it's Tiger Woods, whether it's LeBron James, whether it's living in an era where you saw Prince live, uh, Frank Sinatra, um, you know, the list goes on and on. And Eddie Van Halen is one of those guys. You, know, you, you kind of look at greatness like what was before him and what yes. came after. And when you look at Eddie Van Halen, you know, no one was playing like him before he brought out the tapping eruption thing. By the way, which can be extremely, you know, uh, annoying and self-parodying if you're not done right. Eddie was able to integrate that into his performance and songwriting and make it palatable for the consumer. He blew that up into something that was obviously synonymous with his playing. And... Since then, everybody and their mother has learned to play guitar or tried to, uh, to ascend to the heights that Eddie Van Halen did, and yeah. no one really ever got there. You know, in terms of a rock guitar player, Jimi Hendrix, you know, is, but Eddie Van Halen is, is neck and neck for the all-time greatest player. And when you lose someone of that stature and was part of the band that did something impossible, too, they changed lead singers and got bigger commercially. Uh, and whether you like DLR or, or Hager, that's up to you. But when you lose a person that's, you know, my age, that's been such a part of my musical pedigree, my history, uh, it, it, you lose a little bit of your soul. It, it really affected me, the, the loss of Eddie Van Halen, you know, because greatness is gone then. It's gone. Like our lives, will, the, the world will always be different without Eddie Van Halen in it. It's interesting that you bring up Jimi Hendrix because he was – someone else that I thought of in regard to Eddie. Of course, there are two of the greats. If you want to argue they are the two greats, I wouldn't necessarily disagree with you. But as somebody who went from the hair metal world into the specific guitar virtuosity wormhole, everybody else that went really into that and embraced being an ultimate shredder, you kind of are bound to start alienating people and you become first only for dudes and then you become only for dudes who play guitar in the same style as you do. There's a lot more girls that do it nowadays. But at the time, the Satriani's, the Vi's and stuff like that, Eddie figured out a way to do it just as Jimi Hendrix did. Is the only other one that I can really think of where you were still palatable to a mainstream audience. And I think even beyond the, the solos, which because he was not a virtuosic rhythm player, he wasn't this no. guy who, who was who was constantly shredding. He was pretty much playing chords. He had a really uh, great rhythm sound. But if you really just think about the opening chords of Running With The Devil, which are not hard to play. If you can pick up a guitar, you can do that. Even their cover of You Really Got Me. No rock song is easier than You Really Got Me. There's a really short list of bands, I think, that made other up-and-coming bands quit. Where if you were, because we talk about grunge coming and you say, oh, it killed hair metal. Well, not exactly. Poison still had some success after that. The Use Your Illusions came out around the same time as, as Nevermind. What, what happened is no, the barn door closed on anybody else getting in and establishing themselves. And if you were going to practice that day and you were at home tying scarves and bandanas on and you saw Smells Like Teen Spirit on, on MTV, you went, oh, fuck. 
maybe yeah. we just maybe we just need to give up. And I think there's a really, really short it's funny you mentioned Sinatra. I just read since I'm in Palm Springs, basically, just read a book about the rat pack. And how when the Beatles came along, Sinatra was still Sinatra, but he basically became a legacy act the second the Beatles showed up. There were going to be no more Sinatras. Right. When Nirvana showed up, there were going to be no more hair metal bands. I don't know exactly what it is that Van Halen killed, probably the tail end of prog rock as as a commercially viable thing. But I do know that it was such a it was simultaneously so fresh and yet so inevitable. I would also compare Guns N' Roses in that way where you hear it and you just go, oh, yeah. that 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 door that we've been knocking on. These guys just Kool-Aid guide their way into the room. And I might literally need to either start ripping them off or quit because what I was doing yesterday no longer flies effective immediately. I'd put Rage Against the Machine in that same very short list. Right, and I think you're right. I think not only aesthetically, but talent-wise now. I mean, I remember Guns N' Roses came along and I went, wait, I thought this was just a fun little New York Dolls punk rock. Yeah. <laughs> This is virtuo virtuosity and a guy with the best rock and roll voice of all time and uh, some of the best songs I've ever heard on one debut. That's where the bar is now. I'm going back to my Faster Pussycat and my TSOL records. And I'm, you know what I mean? I, I'm done. I can't compete on that level. And I think what Eddie Van Halen did and, and you know, by proximity Van Halen did was bridge the gap between – you know, the Black Sabbath, Deep Purple Rock thing was kind of going in a slow fade there. New Wave was coming. Punk Rock was coming. Van Halen gave a punk rock ethic and energy and bridged and kept metal and rock alive until Rat could pick it up and Motley Crue could pick it up again during that late 70s, early 80s thing. And it was all because of Eddie's blazing tone that he recreated himself, that had such a... I mean, you look at After Eruption, the, you, you, you really got me. It's the most punk rock sounding thing of all time. I mean, the, the, the sonic blast of that after Eruption, is, it explodes your mind. I mean, that, that's why uh, I think they really saved metal in particular with, uh, with, with, with the, those early records. And they, they were able to put a Band-Aid on saving it until you know they could get some help from Motley Crue and the others and keeping the scene alive. You know that, That's what I think. But you're right, though. It's a real benchmark for like, oh, God, I should probably quit or get a little better. We're going to, you know, me and uh, you know, uh, Warren D. Martini and, uh, you know, Mick Morris, we're going to get a little better over here while Ben Halen's saving rock and roll, you know? Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that um, it's unfortunate that it always takes people passing to get back to the basics of appreciating what they were about. Van Halen, for probably longer than they were really creatively vital, just became about the the jokey soap opera storyline of Dave's in, Sammy's back kind of stuff. And as I say, it's unfortunate it takes his not being any being here anymore for us to, you know, reflect on what really mattered about them which is the first the first couple records it, everything after that was amazing that they had the longevity that they did and were able to continue making hits with a different sound with a different singer but um those those first couple records are are are, are the flashpoint and they're all-time records without a doubt and that is one that we'll never play again and i don't care if you put steve Vai in there i i, I there's just there's too many I don't want to see David Lee Roth fronting whatever Frankenstein version of Van Halen would be. I, I, I don't. I don't want to see Sammy back and whatever that is. And the loss is too big. When you lose Van Halen, you lose Van Halen. That's you right. know what I'm saying? Yeah. No. 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 We're, we're left with only Chicken Foot. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. 
And David Lee Ross Vegas sort of review. Yeah, 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 yeah. Chicken foot and, and the DLR Vegas experience live on. Um <laughs> I don't want to speak ill of the dead, particularly of Eddie Van Halen, but I did want to continue the topic that we barely touched on the last time you and I spoke, which is when established bands have established lead singers, but they cut a track where another guy or gal from the band takes lead vocals. And one of the songs that I had actually next up on my list that we did not get to last time was a song on which Eddie took lead vocals. I don't know if you know that he ever did this. This is from the the Gary Sharon uh, album yeah. um, audaciously entitled Van Halen 3 the Boy. yeah yeah so uh, a, a reminder of why Eddie was not the lead singer at any point of their three incarnations but more importantly a reminder of uh, in addition to his guitar virtuosity just how amazing he was of a keyboard player this is Eddie Van Halen on lead vocals with the song that he said he pretty much um, wrote in and recorded in real time more or less like a spontaneous piece of music called How Many Say I Are you ever so silent when she wanted to talk couldn't keep quiet when she needed a hug Come on, too strong when a little's too much How many, how many say I? Boy, that, uh, it, that takes on a different meaning now that he's no longer with us. There's such a sort of Tom Waits, Shane McGowan quality to that performance now that I might have not seen had he not passed. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I, I probably would have eviscerated that with, with my, just being like, it, it sounded like a guy just didn't really know what the melody was gonna be. I, I don't think they even fixed his vocal. No, I don't uh, think they did. I don't think the baritone style was, was even his thing inside because he sang a lot of backup on Ben Halen Live. I, I saw it I and mean, it was more, uh, yeah. more projected and had higher registers, so. That it, what is it? It's kind of what we talked about earlier, like bands that just were at their creative, like, like just depths, meaning like there was nothing left on Van Halen 3. They lost their singer. And probably the main motivator songwriter, Sammy, was unbelievable at lyrics and melody. Gary Sharon's in here. They don't know what the hell to do with this guy, who's extremely talented. Don't, don't get it twisted. And now uh, Eddie's writing songs on keyboards and doing scratch vocals and putting them out on record. That's I mean, right. That is sort of when you go, we, we, we've got nothing left as a band. You know, it, it's mm -hmm. kind of ironic that we talked about that early. That's um, right. There's a real sadness to that now, totally hearing that. I don't, I don't know even, I, I don't know how to really comment on that. I, I imagine they're going to play that song in memorials and tributes for him. Mm -hmm. You know, so boy, does it take it on a whole new meaning. You know, it was a song that we were going to put on and go, can you believe this is Eddie Van Halen before he passed? Now it's something that has this incredible depth and emotion to it. Because it's coming from the heart. That's right. And Van Halen, not a band very often noted for their sincerity. That wasn't what they were. They were not a, a heart on their sleeves kind of kind of band. But that song very much was. You so know, the last time you one two didn't really set the example high for their <laughs> 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 Let's see. awful carnal knowledge. You know, <laughs> it's knees rhymes with please. Yeah, we could do that. We could do that. <laughs> So yeah. last time we took a look back at songs from Heart and the Cars and the Pixies and oh yes, uh, Motley Crue, Tommy Lee for uh, bandmates taking the taking a turn on lead vocals. 
This next one right here, I don't know how familiar it would be to all of the listeners. I have no doubt very familiar to you. Refresh your memory of this one. Guns of Brixton from The Clash. I'm, I'm sure you are very familiar with that one, Mark McGrath. Of course, the legendary Paul Simonon plays bass, also singing that one. Now, mm-hmm. here's, here's the thing about The Clash. They needed a bass player. They, they thought Paul Simonon looked cool. He looked like James Dean. Let's bring him in. He didn't play bass before. He, he picked it up like a fish in water because not only did he become a really great bass player, there's a lot of great funky reggae bass, a lot through the Clash's catalog, but yep. singing and playing bass is so hard to do. And they used mm-hmm. to play that song live all the time. I'm like, wait a minute, did they switch instruments or something? He's playing bass and singing that. So that is the occasion where it really works because Paul Simmons is just so effortlessly cool. That's I mean, right. his voice just had to be cool. Yeah, that's right. So we also mentioned earlier in this episode uh, the the things that can happen to band dynamics when it stops being all for one and people start having to deal like businessmen and um, have to consider the money element of things. I don't think that this was an acrimonious thing, but it makes sense when you're trying to get your band off the ground. Okay, you guys are writing the songs. I'll be over here designing the t-shirts. I'll be designing the posters. I'll be the guy that makes everybody take us seriously when we walk into the club because I'm the coolest looking guy in the band. None of those things that I just mentioned entitle you to royalties. No. no. And Paul said that he figured out pretty quickly, and and, and it's, it is very often the bass player. I think, you know, obviously there were a lot of different facets of cool in Guns N' Roses, but Duff McKagan was a big part of of the cool. He had that same kind of, of role, but cool doesn't get you royalties. And so Paul said, well, I, I pretty much figured out I needed to write a song. And you can tell that that's somebody who's has a pretty limited repertoire of songwriting chops, and that's what makes that song so cool. Absolutely. And he relied on the backing vocals of Mick Jones and Joe Strummer. Oh, the guns up, Rick. He knew where his talent lie. I mean, I've always yeah. said this as a singer, knowing what you can't do is just as important as knowing what you can do, you know. Uh, but th- you're right. I mean, I remember someone said, I, well, Robin Zander said, you know, here we are. We sold a couple records and we're doing well. And I saw, I went to our manager's office and I saw a check for Rick Nielsen for $5 million dollars. And I just got my biggest check was like for 40 grand because, you know, Rick wrote the songs by himself. So that's when that evil monster comes in and called money. Hey, but I'm the guy that designs the logos. Well, great. You know, at first it's a team effort and everybody plays a role. But when you see how much money comes in with publishing and songwriting, then also the drummer's like, hey, change that and to an and, A-N, not A-N-D. And I want 20%. That, that's when all the bullshit comes in, you know? And then you feel, if you're any kind of any human being, as, as I was, you want your friends to come up. You want them to make some money too. So you're trying to include their shitty songs in your, yeah. you know, in, in your rep. And then that's hurting the band as well. So, man, when the money train comes in, it's really hard to sort of, A, learn where the distribution is. I mean, the Chili Peppers do something very diplomatic and it's probably kept them around for so long. They break it all down, 25, 25, 25, no matter who brought it, who did it, who done it. And yep. it's, it's, you know, it's, you got to be Chili Peppers, though, because you're still playing stadiums. So, well, you know, I didn't make the 
40 million on publishing, but I made a, you know, I made a hundred million on touring. So it's very interesting. And I, I think, I think you too does something like that as well. Now that's something I did and something I completely regret now in retrospect. I, if you were a member of Sugar Ray, uh, just a member and didn't show up for any songwriting or recording or had nothing to do with it, I would give you 10% of the publishing and songwriting. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now we had a DJ and some other guys in the band didn't really do much. So some of the songs, 20% of the publishing and songwriting were gone immediately. Now that has cost me and the other three guys millions of dollars in retrospect. And that is something I really regret doing. At the time I didn't because I was trying to do an all for one, keep everybody involved. And we kept the band together for 23 years. Those same guys ended up suing me, but what are you going to do, you know? So, you know, no good deed goes unpunished sometimes. Two things on that. I heard from a pretty good source, and I may mention this to you before, but I find it so incredibly remarkable that on at least the first Strokes record, which is to me a classic, those guys kind of get shit on for having not broken through and becoming huge rock stars. To me, they did their job, which is follow up on the hype and deliver a great album and the rest is outside of your hands and they they more than did that that first strokes album is amazing and from what i heard although they seem to have become more collaborative as time has gone on and maybe the well's gotten a little dry and they've needed to stretch it out a little bit the first album was written entirely note for note by the lead singer julian casablancas and he not only gave an equal share of songwriting to every one of his bandmates also gave it to their manager that's an incredible act of kindness and, and team spirit and generosity and probably why they're all still together today. That's right. That's right. And maybe not a coincidence. And also, like I said, I just finished reading this Rat Pack book. It's called Rat Pack Confidential. And I've been trying to Google this little fact that I came across. It was just mentioned in passing this one time, and I haven't been able to confirm it since then. But Sammy Davis Jr. came up with this trio. Sammy Davis Jr., pretty interesting. Uh, I'm going to call him a cat because I think he wouldn't mind that. Pretty interesting. <laughs> Pretty interesting cat, never went to school, was literally raised as a child with performers. And they said like his 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 son wanted yeah, his his son wanted to play catch and he said, First you're gonna have to teach me how to have play a catch. When I was eight years old, I was playing Pinochle in, in green rooms. Yeah, right. That's, that was my childhood. But he was with this trio, I think it's called the Will Maston Trio. And he was he achieved a degree of success, even got on TV and stuff with them. And they just mentioned at some point in the book that he was always broke. He was always spending money and throughout his entire solo career, continued to split his money in three. With the other dudes of the trio? Cake up, cake up the other dudes. That's incredible when you think about that. That means yeah. he was making less than the entity that came in for Sammy Davis. What, yeah. And then that's not including managers and agents. Did you know what I'm saying? So Sammy yeah. net, two thirds of it went to God knows who, you know? Yeah. And I know the trio you're talking about because Sinatra saw them playing on some review when he was doing this thing. And Sinatra yeah. was like, that's my guy, let's go. And, yeah. and he, he really gave him a big step. But, that that seems like an incredible act of deference and and, uh, and and gratitude. It almost seems some guy, some manager would have said, "Sammy, stop it! Break each guy up a quarter million. Say that's we've been paid, you, you know, enough. I'm going to move on, you know." But I, I happen to know Sammy almost he died broke. I know that he liked he yes. liked to spend money too. Okay, he spent it as fast as he earned it. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. He left his he left his uh, debts to his to his widow with the IRS. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, sure. uh, yeah. was a widow because a really interesting story. Uh, years ago, I think like early nineties, uh, my my dad was looking at possibly buying Sammy Junior's house back oh. in the day, and 
he, he told me the story. She needed to sell it because she had no money. She was gone. And he, and he was looking at it and then told me, I go, Sammy Davis Jr. has not a dollar? If not in the dollar, he's going to sell the house and she's still going to be in debt. So, you know, I mean, there's there's a lot of facade in this uh, business called show. And then there's Todd Rundgren who's got $500 million and no one even knows. You know what I mean? That's it's right. how it works, you know? It is. It is. Well, I didn't think we were going to be speaking about uh, royalties and disagreements over royalties quite so much today, but I have a, yet another song that ties into that conversation and the one I'd originally planned to have pretty neatly. See if you know this track right here. God dang it. I know and I love my car. I always thought that was such a weird title. I it is a weird title. Who's singing? It sounds like a Mutt Lang production, though, but. Uh, it, it's a little bit before the Mutt Lang heyday. Who, who is that? Lead vocals by Roger Taylor. Oh, that's it. The Queen. I, I, I knew. I, he's, the, he's the king of the quirky titles, and uh, that, that's crazy. Right, so that song appeared on one of several that Roger Taylor sang. That one's on A Night at the Opera. was initially disparaged by the band as being pretty disposable, and so they just made it a little throwaway B-side on a little single called Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, Thank you. For those that don't know, Tully, let let them know what that means in terms of songwriting and publishing. Well... Right. See, I don't know if I knew this, that then this is absolutely insane that for people who even maybe I need to need to let people know about how singles used to work. You'd buy the vinyl, the 45, uh, seven inch. And the song that was intended to be the single was the A side. And just another track to kind of entice you to buy the album, I guess, was the idea was on the, the flip side of that. And it was usually a lesser song. It was definitely not a song that they were ever intending to release as its own single, and there's or, a couple little stories. A song that didn't make the album, you know, they put lots, right. like like a lot of they just throw them on there as B sides. They were called B sides, you know. Right, right, right. And there's a there's a handful of songs. This is a whole other episode where the the song that was intended to be the B side is the one that the radio stations picked up on. That obviously was not the case with "I'm in Love with My Car" and "My Sharona" was one of those. Is that okay? I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Um, I think what is it? Is it? It's either Benny and the Jets or maybe Crocodile Rock falls into that category. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yep. And there's there's a lot. There's a lot. So here's my question about this. So supposedly Freddie Mercury was unhappy when Roger Taylor got half of his Bohemian Rhapsody <laughs> songwriting royalties because of this dumb "I'm in love with my car." Even though that song became sort of a, a hidden classic, and I'm looking at a live album that they put out where they performed that song. So it did end up having some staying power with the fan base. Yeah. But if that was really going to be a sticking point for Freddie Mercury, why wouldn't he just have been why wouldn't he already know that? Why wouldn't he have been putting his own songs as B-sides whenever he had an A-side to avoid the possibility of anything like that? Well, I mean, do we know that's true, that he was completely unhappy with that arrangement? At that point, they were so big, and they, they knew where their revenue sources were. Uh, back then, the B-sides were really throwaways because you didn't want to, like, you, want, you, you wanted your next single to really generate and move products. So I, I'm not sure, and it's my understanding that every guy in Queen... Not only was it an accomplished songwriter, that's why it kind of threw me off, but every guy in Queen wrote a number one song. Right, there's another, another one, Bites the Dust. 
and is the is you got to figure out where the the number one base came from, and that would be that John Deacon, obviously Brian May and Freddie Mercury are pretty easy. So Roger Taylor, you think also wrote a number one song? Yeah, and I, I don't think it was number one in the U.S. It was in number one in the U.K. But John Deacon also wrote My Best Friend too, which is a gigantic song. So oh, they had some that. real. Real songwriting, but but Roger Taylor wrote a number one song, he's number one canner or something. There's a, there's a unique sort of a distinction of the band that every member wrote a number one song. And by the way, I don't care if it was number one in the England, India, or wherever. That's a pretty incredible thing. So having Roger Taylor sing a song, and but Roger Taylor has got one of the best voices in the world. His harmonies in Queen would not be Queen. He's the he's the high stuff and all of that so it's always the drummer i don't know why that is it's always the drummer that gets stuck with that shit yeah it was man i had this bootleg of warrant playing at gazari's and and steven sweet's vocals were just a a mite too loud in the mix you always think about queen like how many bands you hear like yeah they sound just like queen none because there's only one queen with the exception of jellyfish but they never attain the heights the Queen should, but that is my understanding. That's why this one kind of threw me because I could tell it was obviously a big, huge band. But because yeah. Roger Taylor wasn't looked at as like, oh, look, we're giving this guy a shot. I mean, he, I think he sang a couple songs. I think he had lead in a couple songs, and he wrote a lot of stuff too. So yeah, he, he, he sang wrote. he sang lead in a couple songs, and he wrote a song that went number one in nineteen countries. That is Radio Gaga. Pretty goddamn big song, and arguably the biggest song on their Live Aid when they played that Live Aid '85, considered to be one of the best performances of all time. Um, well said. Oh, we here is. I mean, remember you can see the crowd right now go radio. So that's that's what I'm saying. That's why when you said like Roger, that's why when I heard you know I love with my car, such a horrible like title by the way. But um, how did Freddie let that get away? Let's forget about putting a song on there. But I think. I guess, I guess Radio Gaga came after that because that was Bohemian Rhapsody. So, I don't know. I think Freddie probably believed in his talent, dude. And sometimes, Freddie, I don't know. I, don't know. I mean, sometimes you can step back and objectively look and go, this is so crazy, it might just work. You know? I, I don't know because that's so not something. Yeah, and it kind of did. It, it was popular enough that it ended up on a live album after that. Not the case with this next song that I'm going to play you. This, to me, is a very clear example of throwing a uh, a band member a bone because oh. there is because there is some internal tension and you need to let a little bit of air out of that. See if you know this track right here. This is off of a very, very, very classic album, not, to my ears anyway, a very classic song. Yeah, you know that one. You don't even have to. You don't even have to like ever heard that song before, and you know who the band is. You know, sure. I mean, it's just so sting-driven, like the, the that bass, you know, and the, yep. the vocals and everything. And that's that's giving Andy Summers a shot. That is exactly right. He has another very bizarre turn on lead vocals that I'll I'll share with you in a different context on on another show in the future. But we, we were mentioned Weird Al earlier weird al used to do these things and probably still does where he obviously did the song parodies but other times he would do style parodies where he would write an original song as a joke in the style of another band that to me sounds like weird al recorded a bad police song on purpose 
Smart. Very, 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 very much correct. Now, what I'm curious is, did Andy bring that in by himself, or did Sting write that? Let Andy sing it because it's such a Sting-sounding song. I mean, not just because he's all over it and his bass playing, but I wonder who was directing how this song is going to sound. Well, no, I don't need to wonder that. I do, but I wonder what Andy brought in and then what it became. And it's also it's kind of equally weird if Andy wrote it and he showed up and he said, "Hey, look at this thing that I made." Right. <laughs> like, oh, that's you know, that's oh, interesting. Oh, oh, yeah, you do this thing. Oh, oh, and you boom, 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 reggae, a, a moving reggae bass. We're like Andy probably brought that in as like an acoustic ballad, and he turned it yeah. into this thing. You know. Um. Uh, oh, Stuart Copeland is the only credited songwriter on that song. Wow. So it's Stuart yes. Copeland bringing a song. The Andy Summers. So, so we know that it must be. It must. It's got to be Stuart Copeland singing it as well, which just goes to show you, as a songwriter, he is an incredible drummer. Yeah. <laughs> we should all play drums as good as Stuart. So that, that's Stuart singing. It has to be. It has. There's no way he wrote a song to show Sting, "Hey, you're not the only guy that can do this," and then said, "Hey, and Andy, let, sing this." And then let Andy sing it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah so. That would never happen. And Andy, never, Summers, ever, ever happen. Andy Summers had a solo record that wasn't bad, and I think he was in a band after the Police that came out with a few records that weren't, weren't horrible either. So that's wild. And like, talk that that band had more tension than I mean, they actually hated each other, and you could yes. see it in the video. It was palpable. You know, they really yeah. disliked each other. Yeah, no, they really, really did. And uh, the famous anecdote is that when they did their first reunion show of their big reunion tour, I guess people were able to see Andy um, giving Stuart the finger behind his back while they were playing live That's on stage. That to me, I don't know this for a fact, but I remember hearing about this general phenomenon and, and the police to me seemed like the perfect example. The Sade is another one that came to mind of where you have these people that just had this expectation that we have this catalog and it sells X amount of copies per year and we can, and my accountant tells me I can expect to make X amount of dollars every year for the rest of my life, just like the Eagles do, just like Led Zeppelin does, et cetera, et cetera. And then Napster comes. Yep. And all of those mortgage payments on those French chalets are now in, in danger. And that's when, you know what? It might be kind of fun to see if we can breathe some fresh life into those songs and do a tour. Sade also famously never toured and all of a sudden she was on the road. And it just seemed like the timing was a little too perfect that they needed to supplement these lifestyles that they thought they thought they had rock and roll retirement funds. Yeah. And, and they, they did not to nearly the extent that they all quite reasonably assumed. No, I, and I always say this, I mean, that, that, that was our pension, you know. Not only that, there was record sales, and then there yeah. was songwriting and publishing. There was, there's, you know, there was three different entities how you get paid in a band, if you're lucky. You sell records, songwriting and publishing, and then live. You know, and live used to be the least generating one. So like you said, get a couple records that were hits, a couple songs that are huge. You can make a couple, you make a half million, million dollars a year, depending on what you did and what you didn't do. That completely went away. What surprises me about the police, Sade has always been one. She's never toured a lot, totally. She does, you know, she's one of those that comes out every five, six, seven, eight years, probably to pay the mortgage, like, you know, get the get the you know, the winery up in shape and up and running. But uh, but the I don't understand why the police did it. That one always escaped me. Why they got okay? No, you make it. You make a good point because very often, what it comes down to with bands reuniting is even if the band would be a bigger deal reuniting than the guy who's gone solo, they need to be three or four times a bigger deal for it to make money for that guy. I know that was always a thing with new edition reunions. Is a new edition reunion would be a bigger deal than a Bobby Brown solo tour, but it wasn't 
more than five times bigger. And that's what it had to be for it to make sense for Bobby Brown to do a new edition instead of just his own thing. Right. Or you need to have this very uncomfortable conversation, all for one, one for all, let's run it back. Bobby gets half. Yeah, well, well you're right. Well, there's no doubt Sting split it three ways with that police reunion. There's no doubt he didn't do that. Because, by the way, if you told Stuart Copeland and Andy Summer, look, we're going to generate $300 million, uh, you know, with this police tour, I'm giving you each 15 to do it. They were going to do right. it. You know what I mean? Because th- th- there's just no doubt about right, that. Right, right, right. Yeah. Showbiz, showbiz, not show friends. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, you're very empathetic to other bands because I know that you're not speaking from personal experience when you bring this stuff up. I obviously you just understand. <laughs> Can you see the passion and my, my the blush and my face color turns? <laughs> I mean, you know. Here's another band that we have uh, touched on once or twice today, all roads leading into one another um, for some reason. This guy has sang lead vocals on a number of songs for this band. Some of them, at least one of them, was a great big hit. This is not that song, but this is my favorite personal song that this bandmate took a turn on lead vocals for. Uh, See if you know this one. That song mean anything to the you? The hell of a voice to, to, to be your secondary lead well, voice. That guy's got a great, great he voice. He quite a bit. Uh, uh, lead, lead me down the road a little okay. bit, dude. I, obviously, it's an English band. It feels happy Mondays-ish or, or Stone Roses-esque to me. You're not wildly off. You're in the right region of the world. That was on an album, but more prominently was featured in a motion picture. It's a okay. live performance in a motion picture. Not too many bands have made the the tour diary movie and been able to release it into theaters successfully. But you two were so huge at that point in the eighties that Rattle and Hum was a theatrical That's- success. And that is The Edge singing a song called Van Diemen's Land. I can't figure out if he wrote that or not because Van Diemen's Land is the original name for Australia. And I think there's many variations of folk songs of people lamenting the fate of Van Diemen getting, you know, stealing somebody's shoe buckle and getting sent away for life in, in <laughs> Australia. <laughs> there are other songs it's, called Van Diemen's Land. Like very Shane McGowan, Pogsy kind of drunken lullaby yeah. type feel to it. So I, I'm, I'm ashamed I didn't know that. I mean, you know, I don't go into deep, Dive you two. I've seen Rattle and Hum. It's been 30 years since yeah. I've seen it. Uh, I should have known that. And uh, one thing I did know is the guy has an amazing voice, and there would be no you two without the edges harmonies with Bono. There wouldn't be. Yeah, know, I'm so. not the hugest fan of, of theirs either. All, all due respect, and obviously I love a lot of their songs. Who who doesn't? But um, yeah, I always thought that that was kind of a, a forgotten gem. And I think I'm always rooting for the the side guy when they have their moment yeah. to 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 come through. Um, but I don't think anybody would ever look at The Edge as being like, you know, the, the McCartney and Lennon, even if he's not singing a lot of the songs, 
you know, the, the, the guitar playing, the, the, the stylizations, there would be no U2 without The Edge. I mean, talk about being an inventive guitar yeah. player. I mean, The Edge has had as much influence as an alternative world as, as Eddie Van Halen has in the metal world because everybody eventually becomes U2. Coldplay became U2. Muse becomes U2. You, be, you basically go to that echoey, you know, uh, delay, vocal, and that's all the edge. He absolutely came up with that himself. It's like the ha ha a hammer on technique. It's the same thing. That's his and only. It. That's right. Eddie Van Halen didn't invent tapping, but he might as well have. The edge did not invent yeah. delay pedals, but he might as well but have. He might as well. Yeah, exactly. Because I always say this like, even the killers, you just. You, Eventually, everybody tried to become U2. They set the template yeah. of how to stay there, you know, That's for right. Sure. The killers took a brief detour into oddly becoming Las Vegas' answer to Bruce Springsteen before accepting their <laughs> inevitable fate. Yeah, I did not. I, did. I, I liked the first Killers album. I did not, I did not care for their curveball, let's just be the boss second album. Well, you know, when you start feeling yourself and you start like, well, let, let's, you know, we're the killers, but now let's try and be the best Bruce Springsteen. There already is one. Yeah. You know what I mean? I understand influence. Yes. But don't, be, don't have it become your DNA or your by, aura. You're by the way, that. people trying to be Bruce Springsteen is already a whole other episode that I have that I have prepped. There's an hour's <laughs> worth of of that easily. Forever, okay, Mark let's Dillard. do one more of these. This is a, a, a massive band, um, and multiple bandmates have had success on lead vocals, but not this guy. I don't. think. Think. I, I don't know if you're going to know this or not. This is a, this is a bit of a curiosity. These strange times, I think of a friend. They said was a man of the world. When all the time he was in the fight between the dark and the light. Yes, I too, my friend, find the devil trying to make me do things. I don't want to do. Does that song mean anything to you? If it, if it may be so called a song. What is up with these English guys? And I'm just they're they're in absolute need to take lead vocals and just rap. That was a rap. Um, the backing vocals are trying to give it away to me. They're, uh, is it Depeche Mode by any chance? It is not Depeche Mode. No. No. The, the tribal drums are trying to give me something. It should. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, 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 I don't have it. Okay, so this was the first Fleetwood Mac album in 20-plus years that had not had Stevie Nicks or Lindsey Buckingham, and Mick Fleetwood just patted his back and said, guys, just get on there. I got this. And so he, Mick, Mick Fleetwood did this odd world music spoken word piece um, called These Strange Times, which, by the way, he has just... I think Mick is uh, just as bored as many other people are these days. I just got a press release like a week ago that Mick's got like a new video for that and a new version of it. So Mick is still perfecting his vision on that track here in, in 2020. But yeah, that is um, that is a, a forgettable, skippable last track from a forgettable, skippable uh, Fleetwood Mac album. Well, two, two things in a, real quickly. Your Fleetwood Mac, you put this thing out. You don't call it Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. You, you say, buy my new song on my website. You know, that's not part of Fleetwood Mac's legacy. You know what I mean? That, that's A for me. B, uh, reason why you're seeing Mick Fleet with Fleetwood Mac everywhere right now is because that video of the guy skateboarding with Cranberry Juice and Dreams, Dreams is the number two song in the country right Crazy. now. You know, because of that TikTok video. So I think Mick, Fleet, Mick Fleetwood copied it and he did a thing. I don't know if you saw that. 
He did uh, skateboarding. He was drinking the, the thing. He's on TikTok. So the world has gone crazy. Your dreams is number two right now on its way to number one. And uh, maybe maybe Mick is going, you know what? I've got a song that needs to be heard. And he's going to piggyback this thing we just heard on that dream success. Yeah. Hang your head in shame, every pop artist of today. You are currently losing to a guy drinking Snapple. Yeah, it's real. And the scariest thing is, I'm like, how do I get on this thing? As embarrassing as that admittedly is, it should make you feel better to know that there's uh, 500 other <laughs> people, if it's in the past, who are sitting there going, how can I accidentally have the exact same thing happen to me? But you know what? It just seems like we're just going to, it's like the lotto balls going around when they used to pick them out on TV. Everything that ever was is just bouncing around in there and just sit tight. Your turn will come up again and again every five to 10 years for the rest of your life until something changes in our culture. And I don't know what that would be. Everything that ever was will be again. And, and you, Mark McGrath, will be no exception. Well, I appreciate that, Tully. It gives me hope because when I looked at you, copy the skateboarding thing that this guy did, there was 7,000 other people who already did it. Exactly. For now, you will have to content yourself with hosting Mark McGrath's 120 <laughs> on the 90s on 9 here on Sirius XM. Thank you for uh, enduring technical snafus here today. Well, let's do this again very, very soon in uh, back at home where we have a somewhat more reliable internet connection. Uh, it's something I really look forward to talking to you, Tony, and I love hearing people's reactions. So uh, you guys can always hit us up on social media. We love hearing from you. All right. Talk to you soon, buddy. All right. Take care, bro.